Have you ever asked yourself, what's the best way I can contribute to sci-fi and fantasy in the literary world? If you have, the answer is simple. You just have to be Veronica Belmont or Tom Merritt and host the Sword and Laser podcast. If for some reason you can't be Veronica Belmont or Tom Merritt, however, don't despair. All is not lost. You can still head over to patreon.com slash swordandlaser and help fund their hard work. Every cent you give adds more swords and more lasers to their growing arsenal of speculative literary goodness. That's patreon.com slash swordandlaser. Welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it's so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and of course, awesome discussions from fans just like you. And today is one of those author interviews. We're very excited to have with us Annalie Newitz. She's tech culture editor at Ars Technica, the founder of io9, and of course, the author of Scatter, Adapt, and Remember about the happy subject of mass extinction. But now she's also the author of Autonomous, a novel. Welcome, Annalie. Thanks for having me. How do you feel about uh, having your novel out finally? I'm incredibly excited and nervous. And um, so I'm kind of like vacillating between feeling nauseous and kind of jumping up and down and a couple of other things too. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of walk me through. So Scatter, Adapt, and Remember was nonfiction, but Autonomous is your first published novel. So what was that process like going from nonfiction to fiction? Um, it was surprisingly easy in some ways. Um, I've uh, like like a lot of people who publish their first novel. Um, I have you know some half finished novels and drawers here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not real drawers, but you know like virtual <laughs> drawers Dropbox that should folders. remain yeah. remain closed. <laughs> um, so I had been and I had been publishing uh, short stories, and I really had uh, a lot of things that I wanted to say about people's motivations uh, for doing science and sort of uh, the like the personal relationships that people have with science um, that I didn't really feel like I could get into as a journalist. Um, I really, uh, when I do my journalism and I interview people and they tell me things about themselves, um, sometimes that can make it into a story. But a lot of times people reveal things about themselves that are private and they're kind of telling you because you're having a conversation and they've you know, they've let down their guard. And I don't, I never felt comfortable kind of showing people's private sides in, in articles that are mm-hmm. really about their work. <laughs> um, and so uh, I'd been storing up like all these feelings about people's feelings <laughs> about science. Um, and so I just kind of let it out in this book and was able to kind of um, talk about a lot of the things I talk about in my nonfiction, but make them really personal and make it really visceral and try to sort of convey to the reader um, what the ethical side is of a lot of these, um, you know, rather uh, technical subjects. I think there's a grand tradition of using fiction to get a message that is impeded otherwise. I mean, you can go all the way back to Jonathan Swift, right? Uh, which is a little bit more of an editorial. But but I, I, I find it fascinating that that was the motivation behind this because I've noticed a lot of technology 
sources want to tell reporters all about the reality behind the technology they're developing and how it works, but don't want to go on the record, don't want to be the people to talk about it, don't want to have their name attached to it. It's it's definitely true. And I've had many conversations with scientists where, you know, we talk about their political beliefs or, you know, why they really want to do what they're doing uh, beyond just like, let's invent a cool new, um, you know, hack. Um, and, you know, those stories have to be told. And I think in some ways it is better to tell them through fiction because uh, when when we read fiction, I think our minds are just a little bit more open because we're not, we don't immediately slot everyone into an idea of who they should be like, oh, they're a Republican, so they should be like this, or, oh, they're, you know, a man, so they should behave in this way. Um, and in fiction, we kind of, you know, we can explore ideas, we can explore people's relationships with each other, and it isn't as threatening because it's fiction, you know? And if you mm -hmm. ever feel a little weird or awkward about it, you're just like, well, someone just made that up. Like, this has nothing to do with me and my world, um, even though it actually does. Um, <laughs> but I think that um, that's the really fantastic thing about fiction is it's it's this kind of, it's very freeing. Um, it's a playground for ideas. And so um, we get to be a little bit more uncensored in it. And I promise we'll ask questions about the book uh, shortly, but I had one more question about this kind of stuff that I wanted to dive into because I believe it was like Ursula K. Le Guin at one point said, don't, I, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but she said something to the extent of, you know, there's a lot of pressure being a science fiction writer because everyone wants you to tell the future in a certain way um, and expects you to be kind of prophesizing like what's going to happen, uh, you know, due to science and technology. And she's like, no, you know, these are not, this is not, we're not soothsayers. We're not like telling the future. We're just putting, putting our perspectives on the human condition, you know, sometime in the, the history of, of the humankind. So do you feel like it's more like that? Or do you feel like you are kind of putting ideas about what the future is going to look like? Or are you more just making, you know, personal assumptions based on the information you have? So I, I'm definitely with Ursula Le Guin on that. Uh, I think, you know, science fiction is really always about the present, even when it pretends to be about the future or the past. And it's an exercise in world building and kind of using the future as your world. Instead of, you know, hanging out in Westeros, um, you hang out 150 years in the future. And that allows you to kind of have a connection to the present and, and bring up ideas and issues that are from the present but at enough of a remove that, um, again, there's that, that realm of speculation and free play where you can say, all right, well, let's say a few little things were different. And suddenly we would be looking at um, a world where we have sentient robots who are slaves. Um, you know, right now we're in a world where we have robots, uh, where we kind of still have slaves, um, but, you know, supposedly not really. Um, and, you know, we're heading, you know, politically in a direction where, you know, some people are now feeling empowered in the United States to say like that they really thought slavery was a cool idea. Let's bring it back. Um, hashtag. I don't know what the hashtag is for that, but um, I hope it never shows up in my timeline. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and so that's kind of the the process for me is that it's it's really about thinking about the present uh, at a at a at a one remove, you know, sort of like uh, one standard deviation away from reality, or maybe two, maybe two two standard deviations away from reality. It depends on how dark and scary it is, how, how many deviations <laughs> I, I want it to yeah. be. <laughs> That's a good one. 
good way to do it. Well, you've got you've got your book. Uh, I don't know if this is two standard deviations, but it's set in twenty one forty four. So it's it's near enough that it's a familiar Earth, but it's far enough that you can do a lot of things plausibly. Tell us a little bit about the story. What what is this book about? So it's about two people. Uh, One of them is a pharmaceutical pirate, and she started her career as a scientist and really wanted to develop medicines to help people and sort of discovers in the process of her education that, in fact, uh, really only rich people have access to medicine uh, because um, the patent laws have allowed companies to just retain control of drugs long, long after uh, they really should. So it's kind of a world where Martin Shkreli has won. I was just um, going to say, like, this feels very Martin Martin Shkreli esque yeah. in a way. And I actually wrote it before he happened, so oh, I, wow. in that way, I predicted. Martin <laughs> <Shkreli>. <laughs> um, you know, and I think he's just a kind of extreme example of of a person that you do see a lot uh, in in industry, tech industry, and pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry. Um, and so. Jack, the pirate, she has decided to devote her life to uh, pirating expensive drugs and making cheap or free versions available to the poor. Uh, And so she has a submarine and a smuggling business. And so she's life is going along pretty well outside the law. But then she kind of screws up, makes a mistake and gets on the radar um, of uh, a corporation whose drugs she's been pirating. And so they contract with Um, an economic coalition, which is kind of what we have in the future instead of nation states. And they send um, a freshly made robot and a person, a man, uh, after her to track her down and kill her. Um, Well, we aren't sure if they're going to kill her, but she thinks that they're going to kill her. Um, And so it's kind of a chase story. It takes place over a period of only about two weeks, and she's uh, being chased by these two Uh, people. And we switch back and forth between Jack's perspective and the perspective of Paladin, who's the robot, uh, who's just, like I said, just freshly built and is trying to figure out what the heck is even going on? Who, why are all these people doing things? Like, why is she being told to, you know, go kill this person? And what is piracy even? And who is she? And who, you know, so it's kind of like, a robot coming of age story crossed with, you know, your standard pharmaceutical pirate story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that it's it's not a copyright pirate, it's a drug pirate, but also at sea in a submarine, so kind of a pirate pirate, right? Yeah. I I had to have that. I was like she's got to have a cool ocean <laughs> vessel. Like it has to happen. So, yeah, and I I luckily um got some good advice from somebody who'd actually served on a submarine. To- oh, nice make my submarine not as dumb as it was in an <laughs> earlier draft. <laughs> so what does the world look like in this year? Like, what is the what is the prevailing vibe? It, would you consider it a kind of dystopian world or is it more just kind of a, I don't know, how do you feel about it? Um, the way I felt about it was that it's as much or as little a dystopia as the world is now. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a continuation of today and that some things are pretty great. Um, the technology has gotten better. Medicine has gotten better if you have the money for it. Um, and, uh, you know, people have more access to information um, and, you know, innovation has continued apace. You know, everybody has a 3D printer that they can use to, like, print out an arm if they want to or print out food or uh, various other things they might need. On the other hand, um, the 
nations of the world have basically crumbled away and formed uh, these kind of large economic coalitions, kind of like um, kind of like in Europe, where we have like a slowly eroding, sadly, <laughs> economic coalition. Um, and so there's several of these economic coalitions, um, which now actually seems really utopian to me because now, of course, we're having this return to nationalism. And I'm like, wow, well, <laughs> maybe I have a pretty good idea here. Yeah, but it's it's a very um, it's a very free market uh, world. And so um, the United Nations has been replaced with an organization that's just the International Property Coalition. And so instead of having um, human rights and civil rights, people have property rights. Um, and a part of that is that uh, we have, we humans, uh, have once again brought um, uh, indentured servitude back into the economy. And a big part of the economy is buying and selling people and robots. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's some rules that regulate that. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to be able to uh, be indentured for more than like 10 years and a lot of other things, but people break the rules all the time. And so basically this is a future of where slavery is a big part of the economy again. So that part is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I like that it's, you, you didn't just say, oh, well, robots will be slaves, uh, but also figured out a, a, I think very natural progression of what we've got going here, which is always good futuristic storytelling, in in my opinion. We've got a system where terms of service and renting things are kind of creating the beginnings of a little bit of a feudalism where you don't own things anymore. And that could naturally lead to indentured servitude or something of that same sort under another name, don't you think? Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, one of the things that was fun was kind of coming up with the euphemisms that people use Mm. because they don't want to say slavery. So they talk about indenture, which is kind of the polite term for slavery, but the even more polite uh, term that's sort of the official term is just the human resource economy. (laughs) Uh, And so there's all these kind of funny moments where people talk about human resources and what they really mean is slavery. Um, but you know, they're just using the polite term for it. But, uh, but yeah, I thought about like, you know, if we had, if we had AI, if we had robots that had human equivalent intelligence and they were kind of acknowledged legally as humans and which sort of happens before the novel takes place, robots have been kind of given basically human status, um, but they can be indentured. And, um, so I kind of imagined this, uh, legal situation where, if robots are human equivalent and they can be indentured, why can't humans be indentured? <laughs> and so humans are now free to become indentured. Um, and that's exactly how... Uh, free people... to become indentured. Yeah, and that's yeah. exactly <laughs> how it gets phrased in the book, is that you're free to sell yourself um, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. that's a kind of a right that you have. If you don't have any money, that's a great thing, right? Yeah. Um, so You're free yeah. to give your information to a social network in exchange for its service. You're free to indenture yourself. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's very, you're very right. That's It's very much a continuation of that kind of thinking. So Well, and you kind of have to do it that way because if you are saying in the book that robots are people, they count, they have personhood, then you have to somehow put them on the same playing field as the the biological humans in the same world. So if the robots can be indentured, then the people also have to be indentured because they should be equal in that sense. Is that kind of where you're going? 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, that's the legal argument that gets mm-hmm. made in the book, you know, because it's sort of a sneaky legal argument because, um, you know, some uh, corporations really want to have indentured uh, servants working for them. So they're like, well, but hey, like, here's a way we can do it. We already have robots who are indentured. Um, but there is, in in this future, there's a lot of resentment among humans who don't think that indenture is a good idea and they kind of blame robots. And so there's this great you'd hope that the humans and the robots would kind of get together and be like, wow, we have the same interests. You know, we're both uh, being screwed by the economy. Let's, let's, you know, form a union. Sentient beings unite. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, holograms unite. Um, so, uh, um, but they don't, of course, because a lot of humans feel like it's the robot's fault. And so they blame the robots. And of course the robots in turn uh, think that the humans are very um, anthropocentric and, you know, only want to have human rights and not robot rights. So there's actually kind of, there are alliances, but mostly it's resentment between the two groups. Well, if we want some, if 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 you want to hear some pretty awesome support for this book and for what you've done, uh, Neil Stevenson says, autonomous is to biotech and AI what Neuromancer was to the internet, which is like, that's awesome. That's yeah. like, I, uh, and not to leave out then William Gibson saying something genuinely and thrillingly new. So you've got like two of, I mean, the world's favorite authors, two of the people who- Two of my I mean, favorite yeah, authors, right? two of like, my heroes. Unbelievable. <laughs> and that, that's got to feel pretty amazing. I'm, yeah, I, I'm still, I- keep saying I, I'm still not sure they read the right novel, but <laughs> <laughs> really glad um, that they that they liked it. Yeah, I mean, it was I was super blown away. And I was really, really happy because, um, you know, because I've been really influenced by their work. So I'm glad that, you know, they weren't just kind of like, Ugh, what's this? <laughs> no, I was super excited. I mean, I was I'm just I can't wait to read this. And I'm just so excited for you about it. But what was your what was your favorite part about writing this book? I think my favorite part was imagining Paladin, the robots, um, the programs that he's running, he or she, uh, he, you know, you, you can pick whether you want him or her. <laughs> um, it's complicated. Um, so uh, he's been, uh, you know, just the way, you know, a Unix machine has a bunch of utilities that have like really terrible, punny, awful names that were, <laughs> you know, thought up by people in the 70s drinking lots of coffee late at night. So people who are robot admins have come up with utilities with just these like terrible names uh, that do things like, you know, they actually like control Paladin's desire and control you know, his sense of self and all these things that are so important to what we think of as what makes us human, but they've just been, they're just crappy utilities that were written by these people who don't care. Hmm. And um, it was really fun for me. There's a whole, I'm not going to give away more than that, but there's a scene where we kind of find out about some of the utilities that, that Paladin is running. And it's um, simultaneously, it was really fun to write. And also, I guess I like got to get some of my like anger out about about Unix utilities. <laughs> Do you have an Emacs Vi analog going on in here? Somewhere? I just like, I'm really, fuck you, said an awk. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't really mean that. Those are very powerful, important parts of Unix. No, of course, just the names. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, we have a couple of questions from, from folks in the audience and, uh, Terp Kristen was also very impressed, uh, about the blurbs from Neil Stevenson <laughs> and William Gibson, but she also wanted to know if you've heard the audiobook narration because audible doesn't have the sample yet. And she's trying to decide which edition to pick up. 
I haven't heard it yet. Um, Macmillan, uh, which is the parent company of Tor Books, um, is planning to do an audiobook. I think they're working on it right now. Um, and uh, the person, I, I'm not, I, I can't tell you for sure the person who uh, got the job, but the person that they had in mind is amazing. Um, and so uh, if they get um, that person or someone like that, I'm going to be super happy. So it definitely sounded like um, they were on the right track with uh, who they wanted to have. And I think I'm going to read a tiny little piece of it. Um, I'm not sure which piece, but we're going to talk about that next week. Oh, um, nice. Oh, so, cool. yeah. yeah. So it um, should, should be soon. I Amazon would say- lists an audiobook that you can order and lists a narrator. Oh, <laughs> Do- they pick. <laughs> they, they list Jennifer Ikeda. Okay, yay. All right, okay, they good. picked her. Wow, I'm, this is like sad. Like, So I'm glad that you guys <laughs> breaking are Breaking news. Ball. Yeah, breaking news for the author. Yeah, so I, I love her work. She's amazing. Um, I heard her read. Uh, and um, when they told me they were thinking of, of hiring her, I was like, yes. So, um, so yes, wait for that. If you like audiobooks, you will not be disappointed. We have a lot of huge audiobook fans, myself included, in the audience, so they'll be excited to hear that. Uh, David says, your article on the, I'm probably going to pronounce this incorrectly because I have a tendency to do that on this show, Cahokia Dig? Nailed the it. Cah- yeah, really? you did. It All is. Right. Cahokia, yes. All right. So David says, your article on the Cahokia Dig last year was super cool. Are you going to visit more archaeological sites? Um, I am going to, and I have been, um, I actually went back to Cahokia a couple of months ago. Um, I went back and joined the same archeologists, uh, excavating the same area. Um, they got a lot deeper this year and, um, found some really cool stuff. Uh, so I'm actually working, uh, on an article for Ars Technica about that dig. And so you'll get the update on what they found. Um, and that should be coming out in about a month. Um, because it takes me forever to write these features. Um, and uh, and I also, in January, I went to visit Angkor um, in Cambodia, and I'll mm. be writing about that too. So um, that was pretty amazing. <laughs> so what, what, was this, what was this about? Why were you there? What was it all about? Um, <laughs> I am super interested in um, abandoned cities. And uh, I'm actually... My next nonfiction book is going to be about lost cities, but by that I really mean city, real life mm. cities that have been abandoned that were once fantastic, huge, thriving cities. Like, why do they? Why do people leave? Um, you know, and uh, Angkor is another great example where that was the biggest city uh, in the Middle Ages, like anywhere on Earth. There were like a million people at Angkor, uh, and um, they all cleared out. Uh, mm. And same thing happened at Cahokia um, in. Uh, about a thousand years ago, Cahokia was the biggest city in North America. Uh, it's probably about twenty or thirty thousand people, which you know for the time was quite large. Um, and within about four hundred years after its founding, it was completely abandoned, um, leaving behind these magnificent pyramids and incredible uh, earthworks and and roads and all these different structures, and um, and nobody knows why. And so part of what I was interested in is to find out what archaeologists think, like why, how a city can go from being basically like the New York of its day to being a total ghost town. Um, and uh, especially right now, um, it feels like a very important question to be asking because, um, you know, we're looking at uh, cities becoming more and more vulnerable mm-hmm. due to climate change and economic um, fluctuations. And so I kind of want to know if maybe history can give us some hints about what's coming next. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Because I mean, if you look at like the the ghost cities in China, for example, mm. or even something like Detroit, if you move a thousand yeah. years into the future and don't understand the economic situation at the time, and you re- notice that suddenly the population dropped, you know, hugely, like how do you come to terms with that? How do you explain that as an archaeologist and the archaeologist in the future? Yeah, it's a and that's that's what they're trying to do, and that's what I'm interested in in looking at in this book and. Um, so far, um, you know, a few patterns have emerged, and and one of the big patterns is that cities tend to be abandoned when they have both extreme political instability and um, climate in like problems with natural disaster or climate change or uh, inability to maintain the city's infrastructure. So it's kind of an you have to have kind of an environmental disaster coupled with a political disaster. Um, oh. Which again hmm. is is not very reassuring. That's super not scary <laughs> at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that that's sort of my my next nonfiction book <laughs> may turn out to be fairly dystopian. <laughs> <laughs> David also knows. Uh, actually, sorry. David also wants to know: Is the tree red? Is a tree red? You think I'm gonna like give away the ending to my wife's book? Give me a break, okay? <laughs> Go buy that book, <laughs> all right? <laughs> it's a good try, David. Good try. Yeah, sorry, no. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I have to uh, say the Cahokia articles warmed my heart because I grew up on student trips to Cahokia Mounds uh, because really? I, I grew up in Southern Illinois and and seeing someone with appreciation for it make it interesting when I grew up with this incredibly interesting thing that I wanted to know more about and my teachers were making it boring <laughs> was really frustrating. Wow, uh, that it, makes me so sad. It was <laughs> such a, because we would go there and I would say, oh, I want to see what they found. Well, you can't see what they found. Well, so this was a, you know, a vast metropolis. Well, that's not what's important. <laughs> and I'm just like, no, that's the really interesting stuff. Like, why are, why are you avoiding that? And so it was great to see that uh, be explored. I was very happy about that. Yeah. And and it, for people who want to go visit Cahokia now, um, it is a, it's a state park and they have an incredible interpretive museum there now that will show you oh, a lot great. of the stuff that they found. Um, they have great um, dioramas and they actually have one area of the uh, museum where they show an archaeological dig and like what all the pieces of it look like and how people kind of figure out um, what we know about it. So it's actually, it's such a good museum. Like it's, it's really, um, awesome that they've, they've got that there. Well, next time I go visit my mom, I'm going to swing by and check Do that it. out. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Any other plans for, uh, for fiction works after you're finished with that nonfiction book? Um, yes, I am doing my next novel with Tor, um, because I love them so much and, um, and they actually are super awesome. And, um, I am, uh, just starting it. Now it's going to be about time travel. Sweet. Yeah. I am very excited about time travel. I can't so. wait to read that. <laughs> so, Annalie, where can everyone keep up to date on all the stuff you're doing online? Um, you can go to my website, which is excitingly located at AnnalieNewitz.com. Um, I'm Annalie in on Twitter. And um, you can also find me at Ars Technica pretty much every day. I'm writing something. Are you going to be doing any book tours? I am. Um, I'm having, uh, I have a number of tour dates, um, which you can also find on my website. Um, I'm going to be uh, going through the East Coast. I'm going to be in Boston and DC and New York. 
Um, and I'm also going to be in Richmond and Chapel Hill and St. Louis, right near Cahokia. Yeah. Um, and Chicago and San Francisco at Borderlands Books. Yes. I was going to um, say, you better be coming to Borderlands. Oh, yeah. Got to no, represent the hometown bookstore. For sure. For sure. So, um, and that'll be uh, for Bay Area folks. That's going to be on the 30th. Um, so, yeah. So, check out my tour dates. It's com slash what's new. And that's where you can find out where I'll be. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We've, we loved having you and I can't wait to read the book. Yay. Thanks for having me. And of course, for you guys out there, our show is entirely funded by our patrons. Thank you to all the folks who back our show. If you want to learn more, head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. You can also support the show by buying books through our links. Perhaps you would like to buy Autonomous, a novel now that it's out. Uh, go check the link out to that and many other things at swordandlaser.com slash picks. If you want to drop us an email, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 4157-SWORD-6. We'll see you next time. Bye. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.